The following audio is from Fathom Church in downtown Littleton, Colorado. More information about Fathom can be found at fathomchurch.org. Super glad you all could be here today. Uh, if we've not had the pleasure of meeting, my name is Justin Wellam. I'm one of the elders here at Fathom. And as you might be aware, Chris, our main pastor, Kyle, our youth pastor, Karina, our missions pastor, and Gary, one of our elders, and other youth are all in Thailand. So you're left with being the remaining 10% of the staff and elders uh, for the next few weeks. But in all seriousness, we're so grateful for the time that they're having there in Thailand. Talking to Marcy this morning, that is filled with different opportunities to work with children there, some different uh, groups. They're going out to different villages to preach the gospel. So there's been a lot of growth from this trip. So thank you for those who've supported them uh, going there. They come back on Thursday, so be praying for their journey back. And just pray for the people of Chiang Mai and the Thai people that are continual. We can figure out a partnership with them as Fathom. So um, grateful for that they can be there and grateful to be here today with you all. And as Chris mentioned last week, he not left, he left me with not only the most popular story in the Bible, but also with 58 verses to cover. So thanks, Chris, for that. <laughs> um, therefore, let's go ahead and get after it. Please open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 58. That's where we're going to be today. That's on page 239 in the Black Bibles. You can also open up your phone and tablet as well. As mentioned, we are encountering probably one of the most popular stories in the Bible today, David and Goliath. It's a masterful story that has inspired so many popular movies and books and has inspired people to overcome the Goliaths in their life or be like David the underdog. And while I think that may be the wrong approach to this passage, and I'll explain that more today, there's something about this story that connects with so many people. Why are we and our culture so obsessed with these David and Goliath stories or with the other way that people describe this type of literary motif? The Cinderella team. Also, can we acknowledge the irony that essentially David and Goliath's story that is filled with bloodshed and warfare and someone's head being chopped off is similar to the name of a Disney princess in our society? But where did the term Cinderella team first come from? Obviously, we know that the Cinderella story is a story about a pretty princess who overcomes poverty and is thrust into the palace and marries her one true love. And that movie was released in 1950. And at the same year, if you were a good sports fan, you would know that's the same year that City College of New York overcame the odds and won the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship, despite being underranked, a smaller team, and defeating powerhouse teams such as University of Kentucky, Ohio State, along the way. They were the first Cinderella team that we now often use in sports. The term Cinderella story was then popularized by Bill Murray in 1980 in the movie Caddyshack, where he uttered the famous line, Cinderella's story, out of nowhere, a former greenskeeper, now about to become a master's champion. Before Cinderella teams, though, sports has often used the term miracle to convey the unexpected and dramatic. There were the Miracle Braves in 1914. The Miracle of Coogan's Bluff in 1951, The Miracle Mets of 1969, and the movie Miracle on Ice that occurred in 1980. Even the Denver Broncos have been considered a Cinderella team before when they won their first Super Bowl in 1998 against the Green Bay Packers. They then went to repeat the next year 
And ever since then, they're still trying to figure out what to do with Russell Wilson. Now, we could approach this passage with the ways that David strategically outmaneuvered Goliath or how he showed true courage and grit and determination to beat the giant literally in his life. However, today, I want to offer a different look at this classic story. As I began studying this passage, I was drawn to the comparison between David and Saul. I think the author intended to showcase God's divine intervention in this story, but I also believe that there is a clear lesson to be learned about how to approach the challenges in life. There is the David way or the Saul way, the way of God or the way of man. After today, there is no going back for David as he established himself as king and Saul sank into mediocrity due to his own pride and sin. The story today is about David and Goliath, but it's also about how God used David and uses us, despite our inadequacies, to achieve his divine plan. We will see David humbly submit complete control to God in order for this victory to be achieved. Therefore, church, here's the question I want you to be thinking about throughout the passage today. How do we surrender complete control to God? David will give us the example And Saul will give us the non-example today. That's why I'm titling today's sermon, not David versus Goliath, but David versus Saul. Let's take a look at the first 11 verses of this passage to establish the context and the setting for this dramatic tale. 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 11. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Well, there's a lot to unpack here in terms of the scene that is being set before us. I can confidently say that in this time, there was no camera crew or movie being made about this. But imagine the movie scene that we are, that's here in front of us. Channel your best Lord of the Rings fight scene as you imagine the scene in front of us. The camera opens up to a sunrise that is rising between the two mountains. There is a valley and there is a massive army on the one side. They are fully dressed in their gear. 
they look intimidating. There is another army on the other side. They're looking a bit more scared, less equipped for the long battle ahead. The valley here is significant. It was a gateway to where the Philistines lived and was a border between them and Judah. It's crucial to control this valley since it's the road between two mountains. Then, out of the Philistine camp comes this massive man. I guarantee that nobody in this room has seen a man as huge as Goliath. He's their champion. Their confidence is in him. He steps out to engage in what is known as single combat warfare, or champion warfare. This is a type of warfare where instead of inflicting massive casualties on both sides, each side would send forward their champion to duel it out. The hope from this type of warfare was to settle combats more quickly, have less bloodshed, and give bragging rights to the individual who won. Goliath steps forward as the Philistine champion. And let me tell y'all, they picked a good champion. He steps forward nine feet, nine inches tall, wearing armor that covered his whole body and weighed 126 pounds. He's carrying a javelin, or in some commentators call it a dagger sword, that is essentially a straight piece with a semicircular piece around it, with a cutting edge on both sides of it, with one purpose to inflict death upon the individual come across. He's also carrying another spear that weighed, that the tip of the spear, not the whole spear, just the tip of it, weighed 16 pounds. He even has a person designated to be a shield bearer, which would have covered his whole body. Are you scared yet? Why does the author here describe this scene in such detail? The reason why is that this is one of the most foundational texts in the Bible. And the author is purposely using this time to set up the scene to leave us today without a shadow of a doubt that no man could just demonstrate enough grit, determination, or gumption to beat Goliath. He was unbeatable. It would take divine intervention to beat him. It's interesting that a couple weeks ago we talked about this, and one chapter before, the same author wrote these words. Take a look at the words on the text on the slide in 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. The author again is showing the reader and us today that we are not to look at the outward appearance to determine what God can and cannot do. Here's another story of that truth. Now back to our opening scene. Goliath emerges, and you can imagine the scene. The Philistines are going wild. Their champion emerges and states boldly and loudly, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. The word defy here in verse 10 is the Hebrew word harab, which essentially means defy, mock, or have complete derision towards another. That word is used six times in this passage. And sets up the contrast, we'll see the rest of the chapter between David and Saul. Goliath essentially has stood in front of the chosen people of God and the living God who throughout history of the Old Testament has preserved them through flood, fire, famine, and through the desert. 
The same God has created the whole universe and sustains it. And Goliath stands in front of the people and essentially says, I mock you and your God. I consider you and your God complete trash and you're worthless in my eyes and I'm better than you. This is beyond insulting. Imagine if someone came up to me and spoke anything close to this about my wife, Maddie, or any of our kids, how would I respond? I'd be furious. I'd be angry. Maybe I speak back. Maybe I throw a punch. Maybe I do something. But remember, this is being said by the largest and scariest man to ever walk the planet. So how does Saul respond? Take a look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They had no hope. These first 11 verses are supposed to make us feel like we are going to be defeated and there's nothing that you can do about it. But, like every good movie, when we reach the climax of doom and despair, what happens next? A peaceful, tranquil scene in the middle of the woods. And that's what we have here in verse 12. Take a look at verse 12 with us. In verse 12, it says, Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. What's the author doing here? We've already met David before in chapter 16. Why are we being reintroduced to David again? Well, the Bible is filled with incredible authors, and they're all trying to use their literary techniques to make a key point. The reintroduction of David here is for emphasis that David is the one now emerging as the new central figure of the story. Remember in chapter 16, he was the forgotten son that eventually was anointed king. Here in chapter 17, we see him being thrust into the limelight and being portrayed as the new central figure of our story. So let's take a look at verses 12 through 26 and see how David enters the scene. Again in verse 12. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eli of the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines 
and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So we see here the different responses that David and Saul take when they hear Goliath's challenge. This response leads us to the first way that we can surrender complete control to God. And my first point, David is resolved to stand up for God. He's angry. Saul is passive and doesn't do the hard thing. Remember in verse 11 that we saw how God and the Israelites respond to Goliath. They respond in fear and terror. Additionally, though, Saul responds by trying to push responsibility onto somebody else. We see in verse 25 that Saul promises money, marriage, and his family to not owe taxes for the rest of their lives to the individual that will kill David. Saul was the king, though. He was supposed to be the champion of Israel. He was the one who was supposed to stand up and fight Goliath. Saul had the tools to fight Goliath. He stood above the rest, as described earlier in the book. He looked the part, but he attempts to shift responsibility to a different individual. Saul allowed fear to take over and didn't allow God to work in the situation. Could you imagine if the story was different? If Saul was the one who trusted God for deliverance? We may be talking about Saul in a different way if he didn't lose trust in God. How does David respond to seeing Goliath, though? The narrative picks up David heading to the battlefield, carrying supplies for his brothers and the other troops. He then comes and hears Goliath's taunts. And interestingly, David's first words in the whole Bible are captured here. And what are his first words? He says, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David is angry. He has a righteous anger towards what's being done here. He sees the situation like it actually is. This Goliath character is openly mocking the living God of the universe. David jumps into action, wants to know what will be done if someone stands up to the Goliath and addresses this taunt. David shows tremendous faith that God would deliver Israel from Goliath and the Philistines because he is the God of the living. David also believes that, this, that God is not only God of the living, he's God of the universe. He's all-powerful, and he's capable of sustaining and creating the universe. David embraces this belief and demonstrates that with God, nothing is impossible. David had surrendered complete control to God and because of this could walk into one of life's most dire circumstances and have complete confidence that God would deliver. There is nothing special, though, about David. God was the one who made him special. 
In church, there's nothing special about us. So often we make excuses that God gives special people special gifts. Those ones that are the most spiritual or the ones who are most connected to God, they were just made that way. More often than not, though, those people have chosen to let God use them and to not control God of how he will use them. This is I wanted Philippians 3, 3 through 8 read over us. I'm going to read it again here, and you can see on the slides. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I, the I here is Paul, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. God doesn't need us to be special. He needs us to be resolved to trust that he, as the living God, will intervene. Church, how can you demonstrate such resolve to trust our God and believe that he is truly the God of the living? What prevents us from moving from a place of fear like Saul to a place of conviction and trust like David? If the first way to surrender control to God is demonstrate a resolve for his name, then the second way to surrender complete control to God is to remember what he's done in the past. We're going to see our second point today in verses 28 through 37 about how David is faithful and remembers the past, and Saul is faithless and does remember the past. Take a look at verses 28 through 37 with me. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with, you, with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? Just a quick side note here. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but how accurate is this exchange between siblings? The know-it-all oldest brother patronizing the youngest sibling. It's amazing that some things would stay in thousands of years in cultural context. And yes, that is coming from a younger sibling. So, okay, back to the text. Verse 30. And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. Verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, 
I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. We see that David had complete faith and trust in what God has done for him and how he believes that he will continue to do it again and again. From saving him in the pastures to remembering the history of Israel, David had full confidence that God would continue to be faithful like he has been through many generations. David also believes that his escapes from the bear or the lion were not based on his own skill. David makes it clear here that God was one who delivered him. We see that David remembers clearly how God has intervened in the past, and he believes he could do it again. But how does Saul respond here? Saul doesn't remember the past, and instead it makes excuses of why this couldn't work. He's logical and factual, but demonstrates a tremendous lack of faith. Saul also had a lots of moments where the Lord had intervened, and he could have remembered God's provision in the past, but he chose to ignore them. In chapter 11, we talked about this last year, Saul led the Israelites to victory over the Ammonites, and the Lord intervened in that moment. But then two chapters later, Saul had an opportunity to remember what God had done, but he instead chose to make an unlawful sacrifice and took matters into his own hands. Here is the ramification of his lack of trust and remembering God's promises. Take a look on the screen, 1 Samuel 13, 13 through 14. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. As we look between Saul and David, one truth emerges. Faith is sustained in the present and for the present, as remembers God's provision in the past. We can't forget God's provisions in order to have tremendous faith. We need to continually remember God's promises and how he has chosen to sustain us and be there for us. One of the commentaries I read was by Dale Ralph Davis, and he says, David will be delivered not because he has true grit, but because he knows a true God. Circumstances vary, but God is the same whether in front of the sheep or in front of the Philistine. Church. How will you encourage yourself to remember how God has provided for you in the past? How will you work to ensure that you are not prone to forget or trust your own strength? What would it look like if we went and lived our life knowing that the God of the living universe has been faithful in his word and actions in the past and will be faithful in his acts in the future? Our job today is simply to remember 
and then act upon how God has worked to sustain and to save us. So if we've noticed how to surrender complete control to God, we need to resolve our hearts to stand up for God. We also remember how God has worked in our lives in the past. The third point is time to relinquish our power and control and give it to God. Let's see how this happens in the last chunk of our passage today. It's the longest chunk, but it's also a very fun chunk. Then verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy, and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. Verse 30, 48. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on the face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath in the gates of Ekron. So that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shehiram as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. And as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. 
Again, for those that say the Bible is boring, they don't get to read gems like this. David is victorious over Goliath. Israel is saved. Good has prevailed over evil. Everything seems to be right again. However, before we give David all the credit, we need to look at how this victory came about. It was not due to an abundance of skill and prowess that David possessed. God is the victor here. He used David in all his inadequacies and lack of equipment to overcome the impossible, far better than any Cinderella team has ever done. Probably a better, compar- a, a, probably a better comparison is a toddler trying to outhoop Michael Jordan. There should not have been any chance here. We see David relinquishing control and leaning into the power of God. This is in stark contrast to Saul trying to lean into his own power and force David into relying upon human strength and equipment. In verses 30 through 40, David was attempting to don the king's armor, the armor that Saul should have been wearing to stand up to the giant. David then attempted to move and prepare for the battle, just like other humans thought he should have been doing, and he concluded, this is not going to work. So what does David do? He goes, picks up five stones, a sling, and says, I'm good to go. How could David conclude standing in front of a giant with five stones in a sling? Remember, David believed that God would deliver him. He had full confidence that the living God would help him in the face of this giant. He relinquished complete control to his he relinquished complete control of his own strength and essentially said, God, you're gonna have to win this battle. David achieved victory even though it was done through the lens of weakness, without armor, without sword, without experience. David is weak here. He's helpless, yet God uses him. God brings about deliverance without the symbol of man's strength. We see other examples in scripture of God using man's weakness and God intervening to fulfill his mission. Take a look at 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, which is on the screen. Verse 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being conceited. Three times I plead with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Sounds an awful lot like what David went through. Insults, weaknesses, hardships persecutions. When I am weak, I am strong. David demonstrated a boldness and confidence in God that allowed him to enter this battle virtually the underdog and emerge victorious. He writes in Psalm 33, 16 through 19, a reflection upon this. Take a look at the slide for verses 16 through 19. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. 
The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep him alive in famine. From these passages, what is evident and what David believed is the following. What matters not is if you have the real weapons, but if you have the real God. If we have the real God in church, we do. Then why is it so, far, then why is it so hard for us to relinquish control? We often say that we want to be like David and be a man after God's own heart. But that means that we're going to have to relinquish control. We'll need to enter the battle trusting God. That can mean letting go, that means letting go of armor that is holding us back and slowing us down. What is that for you? Is that extra money in your savings account? Is that sin you just can't let go? Is it being jealous of somebody else's life? Is it anxiety? Is it that career that you're idolizing? David entered this battle willing to let it all go. Church, I encourage you today to relinquish control. Open those clenched fists and turn them to God. Let him be your champion. Saul couldn't do that. Saul wanted to rely upon his own strength, his own armor, and his own name and prestige. And Saul is a man that we all will, be, we will become in some way if we don't give God complete control. So as you look back at this passage and see David had the resolve to stand up for God, how David remembered how God worked in the past, and how David entered the battle relinquishing control, we see that one thing is true. God's way of salvation is different from the human method, not with a sword or a spear. God accomplishes his plan of salvation in his own way here in this passage, and eventually in his own way by sending his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, our true champion. David is a foreshadow of Jesus and how he saves us from certain death. Jesus, like David, entered the scene misunderstood, not what the people expected, and instead of causing a revolt against the Romans, willingly submitted himself to be crucified by them. The story in David and Goliath should automatically point us to how Jesus overcame far more than a giant to save you and I here today. So where does that leave us today? A few key questions of application. First, how may God be calling you to relinquish control? Remember, your inadequacies may be the reason why God may qualify you for serving. He doesn't need you to get your life right, or to be older, younger, stronger, wiser, or more established. He wants your heart and your willingness to let him use you. What's stopping you from doing that today? My second question. David shows us how to stand up for God and to ensure that his honor is preserved. So church, how can you also show resolve for the honor of God? 
How can you ensure that God's name is magnified and glorified in your lives this week? This may be scary, frightening, and feel like you're facing a giant, but it's time to show courage and remember that the God of the universe is on your side. Finally, how can we ensure that we avoid the non-example of Saul? How can we make sure that we don't avoid responsibility, that we don't forget the past, and that we don't try and seize control? What parts of your life are similar to Saul right now? How can you ask God to enter into that space in your life and to change you? It is time today to move, to move from a place of relying upon our own human strength and being worried about the fears that humans possess to a place where we throw ourselves in our inadequacies in front of our Savior. The battle is already won. It's won and we surrender it all. So I hope you can leave here today encouraged that you don't need to be the Cinderella team to navigate life circumstances. We have the God of the universe winning the battle for us. It's time to surrender and remember that the victory belongs to God. Bow your heads with me and let's pray. Dearly Father, I just pray for our time as we enter into a time of our service of reflection that you will allow us to really consider what are the things in our life that we're um, holding on to, Lord? What are the things that are preventing us from giving you that control? Maybe it's something in our life that we just don't want to admit that has been with us for many years. Maybe it's a different thing that has come up. But Lord, I pray that if we are to be people similar to David, we need to remember that you are faithful. And we need to remember that you are the one who has won the battle for us. And all that you're expecting us to do is to fall on our knees and surrender to you, Lord. So I pray that as we enter into this time of reflection, that you will bring to mind and that your spirit will convict us of what is preventing us from moving from a place of being like Saul to a place like David. So Lord, be with us as we enter into this time. And may we continue to learn and grow as you change our lives every single day. In your son's name, amen.